we're in a series on the book of John, and we've been going through this and looking at what John has to teach us, what the Lord has to teach us through this book. We've gotten up to, we got up to John 13, and we've started to just slow down a little bit. I'm taking it in smaller chunks and slowing down, because this is such a pivotal moment. I mean, you think about half the book of John is written about less than, than five or six days, six days. It's written in that half the book of John deals with that. And so John wants us to know this is really important. He wants us to understand what's happening here. So in chapter 13, what did we see? We saw Jesus talking to them about things like their purpose, about their identity, telling them they were to be people who served others. And I mean, I talk about this every time, and it still, when I think about it, it stuns me. Jesus washed Judas's feet. If you ever wonder, well, who do I have to serve? I mean, are there some people that it's like, you're clear. You don't have to deal with them. They're too far gone. They're the non-elect. Don't, don't even deal with them, right? If you ever feel that way, Jesus breaks that and says, no, he, he washed Judas's feet. He put J- Judas at a place of honor at the Last Supper. He served him. And he says, and, and, and it's striking, you know, when you read that passage, because he looks at the disciples and he says, do you understand what I just did? Do you get this? This is what we're talking about here. So he's preparing them. He knows he's going to die. He knows it's, in, it's coming quickly the next day. And so he is teaching them intensely. And I think the other thing, too, is he, he, he knows what would happen to them. He knows what's coming for them. He knows, he says, Judas is going to betray me. He knows what's coming. Peter's going to deny me. The rest of them are going to run, right? They're all going to be afraid. They're all going to hightail it. And so he is teaching them things that he knows is over their head. He's teaching them things he knows they will realize later. Think how frustrating that must have been to teach them, and they're all going, uh-huh, uh-huh, and he's like, no, you just don't get it, but you will, all right? I got to tell some of you, we, we just had um, a baby dedication. We had a whole bunch of babies, a whole bunch of young parents. Young parents, here's, here's what you're in for. Years of this, years of this, years of teaching your kids, and they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, and you're like, no, you don't. You don't get it, but you will someday. You will someday. And that's, that's so key, because that's the task of parenting. And so Jesus is, is telling them, listen, I want to teach you. In these, we're just going to do the first three verses. He's saying, I want to teach you something. I want to give you the confidence, the hope, the basis, the foundation to accomplish the mission as hard as it's going to be. So let me read. It's just the first three verses of John chapter 14. You can look in your Bible, follow on on your phone, or you can just listen to me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And so he's, he's teaching them something incredible here. He's teaching them this is going to be part of the basis, the foundation, the hope, the confidence that is going to get you through what you're about to go through because he knows what they're about to go through. 
He knows what's going to happen to them then, and he knows what's going to happen. Not, only one of the 12, only one died of natural causes. The rest were killed. Peter, uh, tradition shows, and there's some good evidence for this, refused to be crucified right side up because he says, I'm not worthy. Turn me over. Crucify me upside down. Paul, along the, the, the Appian Way, we know uh, even uh, the milestone is, is mentioned, and there's a church built there. And Paul was beheaded. I mean, for the disciples and then others on, they knew, Jesus knew what was going to happen to them. What's going to get them through this? What's going to ena- enable them to deal with this and be joyful as they go through this ministry that, they, that, that is happening to them? The whole chapter is going to deal with this. But right now, we're going to look at the first three verses because as a church, we need to look at this. It's important for us. How can we have the confidence and the hope that transcends hardships and discouragement and suffering and even transcends death? How can we do that? So I want to talk about, we're going to talk about confidence and trouble. I want to talk about first the confidence we need. Now, I got three points. I just do three points sometimes. They come naturally to me sometimes. I make them up, whatever. And, but here, they all, they're all inter, interwoven. So we're just going to keep going back and forth and up and down in these three verses. So we're going to talk about the confidence that we need, especially verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. All right? In that last chapter, he talks about these things. Who's, how to serve? Who's going to betray me? Who's going to deny me? And Jesus knows every one of them is going to die. Christianity never shies away from the reality of suffering and heartbreak. Christianity never minimizes it. We tend to live in our culture with kind of a denial of death. In our Western culture, we always have options. We always have options. We always have choices. No one tells us what to do, right? And so we ignore death. Why? Because in death, there's no choices. When it comes, it comes, whether you're ready or not, and it is coming. And so he's telling them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So here's a picture he's giving them. He wants them to see, kind of, he's creating this painting, almost in a sense, of of what happens to a Christian at death. It's not a leap into a dark abyss. It's, it's not falling into the deep, dark, cold unknown. What is it portrayed as? It's portrayed as coming in from the dark, coming in from the cold, entering into a warm, a gracious, inviting home. I remember at different times when I would speak at places and, and, and go places, um, even not, not too long ago, uh, driving home, coming back, driving through the night on a Saturday night, and going, man, I just want to get home. I wish I could teleport. I just want to get home. I just want to get home. I want to get there. I want to have, you know, when, I, when, when, when my kids were younger, I, I'd always imagine they'd come running up to me, and they'd all hug me on the knee, and daddy's home. Let's wrestle, right? And my wife would kiss me, and we'd sit down for dinner in the perfect Christian family. That rarely happened, but it's what I hoped for. It was my idea. Because we have this kind of ideal of home, right? Some people maybe more than others. Maybe you were raised in a home that was not a happy home. 
home. It was an abusive home. In some ways, you can have this even more of an ideal of what a home could be. And it's usually not that way, except in paintings, right? Thomas Kincaid has become a millionaire painting an idealized idea of what home is. And, and if you have one of his paintings, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying that this is beautiful. This is what everybody would love to have. Everybody would love to be walking up that snowy lane next to a babbling brook, right? In the doors, and there's a big fire in the fireplace, and there's a loving reception. Welcome home, right? But oftentimes, it's more like this. Come up to your home, and the empire has taken it. Where's Uncle Owen and Aunt Veru, right? I got to take that off. Okay, wait till you take that off. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to go there. I was looking up Thomas Kincaid paintings, and there was one of these. There's some painters who do those paintings, and you can buy them. I'm going to put in an order tomorrow. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. But see, we have this ideal of this place where we're welcome, where we're loved, where we fit in. Not like a foreign place, not like a place you know, where you don't speak the language, if you've ever done that, if you've ever traveled extensively, there can be those times where you're in a different country, right? One time I was walking through the airport in Munich, Germany, and all of a sudden I was going, I'm not sure where I'm supposed to be going here. This is not real clear. It was being renovated, right? And so I'm looking at my ticket, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this, and so I start going, who am I going to ask? They're all talking German for some reason you know, and trying to find someone who can tell me, no, concourse B, concourse B. I know the sign's wrong because it, we're, it's that way, whatever. And, and that feeling where you just feel kind of helpless, or even, even if you've ever been to a, a, a business activity or, or, a, or just a, a luncheon or something like that, where you don't know anyone. You know that feeling? There's 30 people there, and they're all talking to each other. And you're going, I don't know one person here. And it feels, I'm not lost, but I'm alone. I'm in a crowd and I feel lonely. I know where I am, but I still kind of feel lost. See, we have this, we have this, it's in us. It's from God. We want home. And death is passing through, Jesus is telling us, passing us through a doorway into a bright, glorious home. Christianity has, has, has risked everything on this, on this premise that, that there is life after death, and that enables us to live now differently, differently because of that. Now, I know we're Western, and we hear this all the time. There's no afterlife. I know this. That you all, I, read, I read a lot of books, all these things that are uniquely you, your personality, your sense of humor, your, your relationships, your friendships, your sense of identity, your, your, your sense of home, they're just a function of biochemistry. They're just a function of neurobiology. They're just essentially an adaptation that has happened for the furtherance of the species. So when you die, your atoms just disperse into the universe, and everything that is you is just gone. Eastern religions will say, well, there is some sort of a transcendence. And I know I'm kind of, you know, this is brief. There is something after death. It's largely impersonal. When you die, you lose your personhood 
to become a part of this giant non-personal life force, like this small drop in this cosmic ocean. That's what, that's what they're, but the Bible says something totally different. The Bible says we are deeply personal. The Bible says we are made for relationships. We're made for connection. We're made for conversation. We're made for friendship. We're made for touch. We're made for meals together. We're made for that. And Jesus, if you, as you read the four Gospels, you will see Jesus did this consistently. He established relationships. He made connections. He conversed with people, even people he wasn't supposed to have conversations with. He was friends with people, even people he wasn't supposed to be friends with. He touched people all the time. Remember the, 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 the woman who had the bleeding, and she's now untouchable. Don't touch, don't touch her. Same thing, happened, same thing happened with this leper where you can't touch lepers. And what did Jesus do? He touched them. He touched the leper and then said, you're healed. He did that on purpose to show them something. He touched the untouchables. Sometimes if you work with people, if you work with homeless people, if you work with people who who have um, sicknesses and, and incredible difficulties, touch is hard. Touch is a big step. When we first built this building, there were four homeless guys living in the woods right over there. And we started ministering to them, and we started reaching out to them. And um, <clears throat> one of them, I've told you this. Why does this make me cry? One of them said, you guys are different. You don't know why. And I said, why? What do, you, what do you mean? I really want to know why. And he says, we've been to a lot of churches. We've been kicked out of a lot of churches. But some churches don't kick us out. Some churches welcome us. That's nice. He says, sometimes if churches like that, they'll, they'll shake our hands and say, you're welcome here. He says, but you know what you guys do? And I said, what? He goes, you hug us. And he said, I know how I smell, I know how I look, and I know that's hard. And you do it. The people here hug them. That's the power. We're made for that. The power of touch. We're made for it. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard for me. Jesus did these things consistently. Even his miracles, they weren't demonstrations of power for power's sake, right? He wasn't just going around saying, check it out, ba-boom, right? I mean, that's what we would do, right? I mean, that's what we, let's be honest here. Come on, folks. That's what we would do. If I, was, if I was Jesus and one of the Pharisees said, which they did at one point, who do you think you are? <sighs> who do I think I am? Who do I think I am? I'd be like, who do you think you are? Boom, now you're a goat. He's a goat, that's who he is. Anybody else want to ask me who I think I am? That's what I would do. I would just go, ba-boom, you're a pile of ashes, right? Jesus didn't do that. I don't know if it was tempting for him to do it, but, man, I sure would have. No, his, his miracles taught. They were personal. They were relational. He fed people who were hungry. He made excellent wine for a wedding. He comforted his friends in a storm. He brought a dead man back to life to his loved ones at home. 
He healed, <clears throat> we just talked about this, he healed the ostracized. He healed the lepers, the ones so that lepers, and when you got leprosy in those days, you had to leave. You had to leave your family. You had no more contact. The only contact they could do is sometimes they'd come to where <clears throat> lepers were sometimes kept, and they would leave food at a spot, and then they'd walk away, and you could come get your food. They couldn't touch. They couldn't talk. There was no contact. And Jesus healed them to bring them home. He did those kinds of things. And so that in the dark doorway of death, there is home. This gives us a confidence, a confidence to live in a way that honors Jesus and serves others, even in hardship in the here and now. So that's the confidence we need. You say, okay, Bob, that sounds good. I like that kind of confidence. What is it? Let's talk about what, <clears throat> what it is. Verse 2, my father's house has many rooms. You're going to hear these verses a lot. It's only three of them. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place? Would I not have told you that? Okay, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So first thing we have to understand is what kind of home are they thinking of? What kind of place are they thinking of? So here's a picture. There's a pretty accurate description of what would be called an insula, a family home. Oftentimes, it was just a wall. It would not be a wood wall because there's hardly any wood in Palestine, which, here's a side note for you, Jesus was not a carpenter who did all his time with wood. He was a stonemason. That's technon is the word that's used there, and it literally means a person who works and shapes stone. They would use wood when they needed to, but mainly they did stone. That was free. You're welcome. All right, so you have this home, and it has a wall around it right? There's this big inner courtyard. That's where the cooking took place. That's where the playing took place. That's where the meals took place. Everything took place outdoors. Oftentimes, the, 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 the patriarch would have his special place. I don't know if you guys ever had that, but when I came home as a little kid, there was one chair that was my dad's chair. That was his favorite chair. And he didn't even have to say he wanted his chair if you were sitting in it. He would come home from work. He'd just walk in and he'd look at me and he'd go get a drink, and he'd come back, and I'd be out of that chair because that's his chair. So here is this picture. I want you to see this picture. There's this big open area. The kids are playing. Food is being cooked. The meal's getting ready to be served. People are coming and going. And there's the father watching it all, watching it all. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching um, my grandkids and some of my kids, and it was just fun to watch them, just to love them and watch them. That's, oh, that's home. That's home. So that's what they're talking about. It's, it's the Father's house. That's very key. It's the Father's house. There's many rooms. It's a place of hospitality. There's lots of people there. Let me just break this to you. You are not getting your own private mansion in heaven. That is not biblical at all. You're not going to meet St. Peter and come up to St. Peter at the gate, right, the pearly gates, and say, uh, Bob Mosley. Oh, maybe, maybe it's Robert, Robert Mosley. Man, I don't see you here. Oh, they misspelled your last name. Got it. Okay. So, five streets over, St. Glory Street, west side, 317. Here's your key code, 4753. That'll get you in. Make yourself at home. And I'd be like, key code? Are there thieves? What kind of place is this, right? Yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. 
But see, it's, that's not it. We have this idea. This is, our, this is a westernized idea. There's hymns that talk about my mansion in glory. <laughs> no, no. There's a place for you. It's the Father's house. We will all be there. That's what will happen. And I know for some of you, you're going right now, ah, is he going to be there? Right? We're all going to be there in perfect love with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So we're with him. And this is what's so awesome. He wants us there. He wants you there. He wants you there. And Jesus says, I'll take you there to be with me. Uh, Theologian John Stott wrote this. He said, Jesus is our escort, and he is the destination. All in one. He is our escort there. He's our destination. He is the way home, and he is home. We were created to know and to understand perfect love, the deepest, most profound experience we can ever have. And in heaven, we will have it to the full, every day more full. We will enter fully into the relational love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Because if you think about this, what's the worst experience? What's the worst thing that can happen to us, even worse than physical pain? The loss of relational love, the betrayal of a friend or a close relationship, the denial of a friend, the death of a loved one, tragedy in a loss of relationship is the worst thing, greater than physical pain. And right now, we struggle. We don't receive love perfectly. We don't give love perfectly. But in God's home, there will be no imperfection in the expression of his love for us. Because here's how it works on earth. On earth, love is always proportionate. One loves more than the other, and they say, why is my love not recognized? I have unrequited love. Earthly love can always be tainted to some degree by self-centeredness. It is easy to love someone for what they give you. But in God's house of love, this will not be the case. The love will be perfect. We will be loved completely for our sake, just because you are you, Jesus loves you. We will love the other in the same way. No one will ever say, which we hear today sometimes, I thought I loved you, but now I'm rethinking it. No one will ever say, I found this out about you, so now I'm not really sure if I love you. Perfect love does not diminish over time. It grows and it multiplies. There are some people here that can attest to that. I can attest to you that my love for my wife has grown and multiplied over the years. It is greater now than it was when we got married. It's more awesome. What a great thing that is. God is the source of this kind of love. It's like a spring that never stops. It keeps gushing out love, and it will not get used up. One time when I was working with youth, we took this group bike riding and it was about 30 of us, 40 of us riding bikes through Newport Park. And then so we headed over to uh, George Washington's headquarters at, 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 in the Yorktown battlefield. And right there, George Washington made his headquarters there because there was a spring there. And it's still there. And you can still drink from it. It's pure water coming up out of the ground. We'd all fill our water bottles from that spring. And one of the teens goes, so when does this run out? I'm like, 
I don't know. Hasn't run out in 200 years. Maybe two kids. Maybe never. Maybe it'll just keep going and going. This is the spring of love that God has for us. It never stops. It never runs out. We want this. Our hearts crave it. This is what we're created for. This explains our constant yearning for home. There's a movie a number of years ago that uh, won a number of awards. The movie is called Lion. The cool thing about it is it's an, it's an absolutely true story. I saw an interview with the guy the movie's about, and they were asking him about, you know, did he, he helped with the movie, and he said, do you struggle with it? They took liberties, and he goes, they didn't. It's basically the whole story. It was a lot about a little boy in a little village way out in the middle of nowhere in India, and he and his brother went running around all day, and then his brother had to run off and do something. So the little boy climbed up in what they thought was an abandoned train, and he went to sleep. And it wasn't. It was a train that was getting ready to be taken to be refurbished in Calcutta. And the train went hundreds of miles before the boy woke up. And he was in an area where no one knew him. He didn't know anyone. Um, he became in tremendous amount of danger for sex traffickers and... Uh, finally ended up after a bit of time in an orphanage. And a couple from Australia, a loving couple from Australia, adopted him. And he grows up in this loving home, and, and he's, he's doing well. But he has these blurry memories of home, of his mom, of his brother. And he decides... He'd like to try to find them, but he has no idea. Because, you know, when you're five years old and you say, what town are you from? Oftentimes, five-year-olds just kind of mispronounce the town because people know it's our town. When he, was in, when he was in Calcutta, no one had ever heard of the town, he was saying, because he was mispronouncing it like a five-year-old. And, and, and all of these things that kept him. So he has these memories, and this new thing comes out called Google Earth. And a friend tells him, there's this thing called Google Earth where you can see pictures everywhere of pictures. And he started saying, well, I remember a little hill by a train station. I'm going to start searching Google Earth. Now, there are possibly a million train stations in India. Everything moves by train. And he doesn't know where to start looking, and he spends years just looking until one day he sees a train station with a little hill that looks so familiar, it shocks him. And he goes and he finds his mom and he goes back to Australia because, you know, he was raised there. But I want to read you a review from the Washington Post. And, and I know, you know, th this is about a paragraph. It's hard for us sometimes to hear, but I want you to think about, this is very interesting, the insight this man has. Even if we reach the shores of our own Australia, a place of relative comfort, success, and respect, a sense of rootlessness can grow. Comfort can suddenly feel like complacency. Success can seem empty or horribly fragile. Respect can become a treadmill of expectations. If we take an hour for introspection and just looking in ourselves, fully examining our flaws and our failures, we generally decide to never do that again. It is uncomfortable to be naked and helpless with our humanness showing. It, if we must prove our worth, it is possible that we may be worthless. If we have to earn love, it is just conditional and fickle. 
a relentless voice of self-judgment. It is possible, even as an accomplished, sophisticated adult, to slip from a parent's hand and wonder whether we will ever be found again. He perfectly sums up the human condition. We live for expectations. We find our worth so many times in things we do. And if you find your worth in things you do, there is a real possibility that at some point you will be worthless. This is what we live with. What is he saying? Deep down, we all long for home, a love that we are alienated from, but we were made for. Comfort and success and respect are temporary replacements for that love, and they are but a poor reflection of the real thing. God is telling us, Jesus is telling us here, the only thing that fills that hole is the unconditional love of God, where he invites us to his home and promises to never let us go. And because of that, that is the nature of this confidence we can have. That is the foundation. But you could say, okay, I like the idea, the confidence we need. I see that. The confidence, how to, the, 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 the nature of that confidence, okay, I'm catching that. How do we get it? How do we get this confidence? And again, we go back to this scripture. Their heart is troubled, right? Their heart is troubled. That is the same word that is used multiple times of Jesus. It is that word of being tossed about. It is that word of being torn in two directions. That is why in John 13, one of the things I was saying was Jesus, it's like Jesus is saying, Judas, you're tearing me to pieces. And he sees that in them. They're anxious, they're struggling. And he says, this is it. Believe in God. You believe in God? Believe in me. Believe in God and believe in him. We have to believe. And, and I say this a lot, but it's one thing to believe in God. It's quite another thing to believe God. That is very key. And again, biblical belief. What is biblical faith? What is biblical belief? It is very rational. You know, you talk about a number of times where we, we mention in dealing with certain things like Mary, when she, was, she, she furiously thought, she worked it through her grid. She said, this doesn't fit. So how can this be? It doesn't fit. I'm seeing angels. That doesn't fit my grid. How can this be? You're going to have a baby. How can that be? Right? That's because she's rational. So she's, we work through something. And then we decide, do I believe this or do I not believe it? Do I believe that I'm a sinner? Do I believe that I need a Savior? Do I believe that Jesus came and lived the life that I couldn't live and died the death that I deserve? And if I do, then I accept this salvation that he purchased for me. I yield my life to him. I put my trust in him. That's what belief is. It is rational, but it's not all rational. There is a step where we say, okay, I believe. Therefore, my life must change. And Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you. What does that mean? He's stacking bricks, talking to building contractors. You know, no, no, the window's not there. It's over there. Picking furniture. No. He's talking about the cross. He said, this will make it possible for you. This will make it possible for us to go home, the cross. You will get the perfect love of the Father because Jesus gave up the perfect love of the Father. You will get the perfect home because he gave up the perfect home. 
we will be accepted into this relationship because he was rejected and mocked in our place. And we get the security of God's perfect love when we are troubled because he was troubled. I think there's some great irony here if you think, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Who needs to be comforted here? In this situation, at the Last Supper, who is the person who really needs comfort, right? Jesus. Jesus. And can you imagine, the, the disciples are all like, man, he's being so tough on us. Oh, this is so hard to understand. I don't get it. Oh, I'm troubled. I don't know why he keeps talking about death. I don't know why he keeps talking about him dying. Why did Judas leave? I don't get that. And, you know, so they're totally wrapped up in themselves. Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's about to be denied by his followers. He's about to suffer and die. And he's telling them, you guys don't need to be troubled. You don't need to be troubled. I will take that burden for you. I was thinking about this the other day. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? The Bible says they were cast out. They became homeless. The wages of sin, we could say, is loneliness. The more sinful you are, the more proud you get, the more selfish you become, the more alienated you you get from other people. So the natural consequence of sin is loneliness and homelessness. And he took those so that we could have an eternal father, a savior, a friend, a brother, a home. And we will die, every one of us. And it still doesn't mean it isn't painful and it isn't hard. But it does mean, verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. See, we have this idea that who comes for us at death, the grim reaper, right? We have that idea. I think maybe a more biblical idea is the person who comes for us at death is Jesus. And he just reaches out a hand and says, come home. Come on home. I'm going to escort you there. Why? Because he's the way. And he's the destination. And so he takes us home. He takes us home. And so there's kind of two ideas in this passage. We know Jesus is coming back. He promises that. And to usher in the end, eventually bringing the new heavens and the new earth. But also, there's this idea that at the moment of death, he comes and ushers us into the presence of the Father. Based on our decision to trust Jesus for our salvation, We see that he's with us even in death. And that empowers us to live now. That empowers us to live now. So we see see the confidence we need. This is a confidence to navigate life successfully and the confidence that is available to us. And we see the nature of the confidence. It is this home that we have this incredibly deep longing for. And how do we get the confidence? We believe. We believe Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We learn about him. We trust about him. This is a lifelong process that we go through that shapes us and molds us as we go through this earth until that day where Jesus says, come, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. And so this is what he's teaching them. Those three verses, all that is packed in there that he's teaching those disciples. This is how you will make it. And he's teaching us also, this is how you'll make it. Right now, things may be going great. And if it is, great. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
But right now, for some, things are going terrible. People are dealing with tragedies and difficulties in their lives. And we weep with those who weep. And he says, but in through all of this, I walk with you. You can have the confidence to live for me on this earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, Lord, that even, God, you know so many people here could stand up and say, this is true. This is true. This, is, this, has, been, this has happened to me. And so, Lord, we ask that uh, for each one of us, we would even take maybe some time today to look at ourselves, evaluate. What am I living for? What's important to me? And placing it before you. Lord, helping us to see that those things so easily slip. The easily pass by, the easily go away. Help us to put our faith and our trust in something that lasts for eternity and to live like it in our neighborhoods and at our workplace and with friends and family, wherever you take us, Lord, that we would be people that they would see something that's different because of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your great love for us that one day we will just go home and it will be more than we ever dreamed of. In Jesus' name, amen.